Well, good morning. My name is Destin Garner. I'm the student ministry pastor here at Rock Point Church. This morning, Ron was down earlier at the Bread of Hope Church, where the Nehemiah from has spoken there, and so he asked me to come and stand in for him, so honored to do that. If you guys don't know about me, I'm about 27 days away from being a daddy for the very first time, so it's happening. It's coming. So I thought what I'd do is just kind of maybe solicit some stuff from you guys, get some information. I was thinking about as I was preparing, what might be the, the hardest moment as a parent? So I just wanted you guys to help me out, maybe throw some things out there. What's going to be the hardest moment as a parent? No sleep. No sleep. Okay. What else? Changing diapers. Nice. Any other hard moments? What's that? 13. Just, just the age 13. I love that. You guys are scaring me a little bit, all right. Uh, so I was thinking about that. What's the hardest moment of a parent? And I don't know, right? I, I've never been there. I've never done that before. This is my first adventure into that. But I was thinking about it. I was thinking, you know what? One of the hardest moments, one of the hardest things of a parent that, that I could imagine is the moment you realize you're starting to lose your influence in your child's life. That you've been the primary influencer, the primary impactor. It's your words and your voice and your lifestyle that has brought them and taught them and raised them. But there comes that point where they just kind of doesn't seem to be as strong. Someone else has their ear. Someone else's words have more weight, have more sway, have more power than yours do. Right? I see this a lot. Parents come up to me in the student ministry and they say, Destin, I'll give you $100. Just say this to my son or daughter, right? They've said it a thousand times, but it doesn't matter. It's just because there's that moment where you start to lose influence and someone else gains. Now, I want you to imagine this with me. Imagine someone, think of someone that you know, that you love, that you care for, that you have poured into. If you're a parent, maybe you want to think of one of your children. If you have multiple children, just pick your favorite. That'll make this illustration more powerful. If you don't have children, think of a brother. Think of a sister, think of a peer, a classmate, someone that you've sacrificed for, you've poured into, you've given your life and influenced them. And let those warm feelings and emotions stir up inside of you. And and now I want you to imagine that that person leaves. They go off to college, they get married, they move out of the house, they take a job in another city. And no longer are you there, right there with them. You're now miles apart. Your influence is starting to wane. And you hear that someone else has got their ear. Maybe it's a college professor. Maybe a boyfriend or a girlfriend now has their heart. Maybe it's a coworker, a peer, a friend, a roommate that now has the most influence in their life. And you start hearing about it, and what you're hearing is not good. The way you've trained them, the way you've taught them, the way you've poured into them and told them how to be and who to be, that's not there anymore. Some things are changing. Then you start seeing on social media that they're, they're different, and not in a good way, but a bad way. Now imagine that's a scenario, and you have one pen and one piece of paper, and all you can do is write them one letter. What are you going to say? What are you going to write in that letter? What kind of attitude are you going to take? What kind of tone are you going to have? What kind of arguments are you going to bring up? What kind of memories are you going to use to pull them back? Say, hey, this is not who you are. This is not how I raised you. This is not what I taught you. Why are you doing these things? What are you going to say in that letter? This is the exact same scenario that Paul is in when he writes his letter 
to the Galatians. See, Paul had been with the Galatians, the believers there. He had sat around tables and he had ate meals with them. He had taught them. He had trained them. He had poured into them and sacrificed for them. He was great friends with these people. But now, they're miles apart. And Paul starts to hear that someone else has their ear. Someone else is exerting more influence over them than he is. They're not believing what they once believed. They're kind of moving and straying and drifting from his teaching. And so Paul, armed with something to write with and something to write on, writes a letter. It's the book we now call the book of Galatians. And in this letter, it's a letter of defense. Paul is defending them from the Judaizers. That's who moved in. That's who got their attention. That's who got their ear. And the Judaizers are strict adherence to the Mosaic law, strict adherence to the law. And so they have come in and they have told the Galatians, you think salvation is by faith alone? No, it's not. You need to be circumcised. You need to put yourself under the law and adhere to it. That's how you become justified. That's how you earn God's favor and earn God's merit. And so Paul, he writes a defense of that. He says, no, it's not. And so he begins his letter, chapter 1 and 2, and he defends his authority as an apostle. This is who I am. And then he goes on, in the middle of his letter, chapters 3 and 4, he defends that justification is by faith alone. And then Paul closes his letter, chapter 5 and 6, by defending Christian liberty. There's freedom in Christ. And so today, for the purposes of our discussion, we find ourselves in chapter 4. Right in the middle of his argument for justification by faith alone. And he had just got through in chapter 3 explaining kind of a doctoral defense of justification by faith. But now he moves into chapter 4 and he starts giving some arguments, starts giving some illustrations for that. And so we're going to begin reading in Galatians 4, but I need you to kind of change on me here. I asked you to think about what it would be like to be Paul writing that letter. But as we read this text, I need you to think about what it would be like for you to receive this letter. Because honestly, probably more of us in here are more like the church of Galatians than we are like Paul. Maybe some of us, we've kind of lost our way or what we once believed, we've drifted from it, we've been lured away. Society or someone else has our ear and has exerted some more influence over us. We're moving farther from the gospel. So maybe we need to hear Paul's words to the church at Galatia as fresh words for you and I today. So let's begin in Galatians 4. We're going to look at Paul's first argument, which is a legal illustration that justification is by faith alone. Paul says in Galatians 4, 1 through 7, I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. When does a boy in the United States become a man? Anybody know? 
Is it 18? Is that really when they become men? Maybe when they graduate college, get their first job. Maybe when they get married. Maybe when they finally have a child and have a family, right? It's hard to tell when a boy in the United States becomes a man, right? It's this process, this like 15, 16, 17-year journey. Even in sociology, there's a new term that's been coined called emerging adulthood. It's for those uh, 24 to like 29-year-olds who haven't quite got there yet. And so we don't know, right? Some point along that journey between 18 and 32, hopefully boys grow up and become men. But this is not the case in ancient culture, right? There was a marker. There was a moment. There was a time when a boy became a man. For the Jewish culture, it's the bar mitzvah. And after it was a 12-year-old boy, he had his 12th birthday, the first Sabbath after that, they would have a ceremony. And sometime during that ceremony, the father would say this prayer. Blessed be thou God, who has taken from me the responsibility of this boy. Amen and amen, right? See, up until that point, the father and the mother, they assumed credit for his accomplishments, but they also assumed responsibility for his mistakes. But on this, the first Sabbath after his 12th birthday, no more. He's a full-fledged member of Jewish society. He has become a man in the eyes of the Jewish community, and now he's responsible for his own actions. For the Greeks and the Romans, it was a little bit later, around the age of 18, The Greeks would take 18-year-old men and they would shave their hair. And they would dedicate that to the God of Apollo. And then those 18-year-old men would kind of enlist. They would become a cadet and they would serve in the military of their city-state. For the Romans, it was also around the age of 18. And here's what the Romans did. Their coming-of-age ceremony. The boys would collect all their toys and they would take them and they would burn them as a sacrifice to the gods. Saying, like, I'm moving behind all that. Which I think is a great idea, right? At the age of 18, I think every boy ought to have to burn their Xbox, and we have a much more productive society. <laughs> right, there we go. <laughs> so it, it's, it's this coming of age, right? This is what Paul has in mind when he writes, when I became a man, I did away with childish things. Maybe it's, maybe it's that sacrifice he's thinking of. And this coming of age is also what he has in mind when he's giving us this legal illustration. Paul's telling his audience that before Christ came, before the new covenant was established, they were children. And that word means an infant, one without understanding. And not only were they children, they were no different than slaves. Actually, they were in bondage before they came to know Christ. And he says they were bound, enslaved by the elementary principles of the world. Very interesting wording there. Scholars disagree, but there's about four different meanings it could have. And so maybe Paul was thinking of one, maybe he was thinking of all of them together. But what does it mean that they were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world? One, it could mean this, that they were enslaved to fundamental components of the universe. The elements, earth, wind, fire, water. And usually behind these elements, pagans would worship a god or goddess. Maybe it means they were enslaved to spiritual beings, i.e. demons or demonic power that is a temporary ruler of the current world. Maybe Paul means they're enslaved to essential principles, elementary truths. They're just enslaved to the ABCs of the faith. They haven't gone beyond that. Maybe Paul means they're trying to achieve divine acceptance by their own effort. One author, when explaining this passage, here's what he wrote. What Paul is saying is that while we were unsaved, we were condemned by the law, 
in bondage to vain philosophies, man-made code of ethics, legalistic interpretations of the law, and demon-inspired religions that brought nothing but hopelessness and despair. But our spiritual coming of age happened when God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so we might receive adoption as sons. See, Jesus was fully God. He was fully man. He was fully under the law, and he came at the fullness of time in order to redeem us. That's the legal word there, redeem. It means to buy back, to buy out of slavery. So imagine you were growing up and you were taken from your family, plucked at an early age. You were enslaved, made to work in the diamond mines of Africa. You were threatened, you were beaten, you were put in horrible living conditions. You worked 15 to 16 hours a day slaving in the mines. And then one day, somebody comes and says, you, you're coming home with me. You're coming to live with me. I'm adopting you as my son, as my daughter. And you ask, what is your name? And the man says, my name is Bill Gates. I'm the wealthiest person on the planet. I'm worth $87 billion, and it's all yours. Everything that I have, now you have access to. Can you imagine that transition from slavery into that type of access? That's what Paul's talking about. But God, he's got so much more than Bill could ever dream of. And Paul is saying, in that moment, we are justified by faith. We're no longer children. Well, the time has come. We've taken our rightful place as heirs. We're no longer slaves. We've been bought out of slavery, given full access, full rights to God. And because of that, here's proof. Paul says, number one, you've been sealed and indwelled with the Holy Spirit. Redemption is a Trinitarian process. Number two, that you have a close, intimate relationship with God. That's why you can say, Abba. That's such a kind, familiar term. It means like daddy or papa. That's the type of relationship you have with God now. And third, he says, you have an inheritance as an heir. What type of inheritance, might you ask? One author said this, we now have justification. We've inherited complete forgiveness of sins. We've inherited immediate, unlimited, unconditional access to the Father. We've inherited membership in Christ's church, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the promise of eternal life, and future bodily resurrection. And this doesn't come through the law. This doesn't come through pagan practices. It only comes through justification in Christ. By faith alone, Paul explains. And that's his first argument, a legal illustration. And now Paul turns a corner. He, he takes a totally different approach here. From this point forward, he's, he's been doing kind of a, a confrontational but very impersonal approach. But now it changes. Paul the, the, the uh, scholarly debater, the theologian, he, he switches and he becomes this impassioned, caring pastor. Paul gets personal here. One author said, these next words are the strongest words of personal affection Paul uses in any of his letters. Paul's pouring himself out. I can just imagine he's writing and theological rebuttals to this, this, and this. And halfway through his letter, he's just fed up and he just goes off. And he just lets his emotions pour out onto the page. Listen to what Paul says in his second argument for justification by faith, which is his personal plea. In Galatians 4.8, Formerly, 
When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. And now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to become once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. See, Paul is reminding them, these Gentile believers, that before they were saved, before they had trusted in Christ as their Savior, they were enslaved. Enslaved to things. They worshiped things that were by nature not God's. They worshiped false idols. They, they worshiped pagan deities. And then look what he does here. He says, but now that you have come to know God, that's salvation talk, know God, or rather be known by God. See, Paul, he's just beating this drum all through Galatians, saying that you do nothing to earn your salvation. You don't even come to know God. Rather, God knows you. It's not that we love God. It's that he loved us first. So Paul's just over and over reinforcing this idea. And he says, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles? It's like being adopted by Bill Gates and saying, hey, 87 billion is nice, but I'm heading back to the mines. And Paul's like, well, why would you do that? And again, remember here, this is the craziest thing. These are idol-worshiping, pagan, Gentile converts. And Paul's saying, you're being enslaved again. But is he saying you're going back to your pagan practices? No. He's saying you're being enslaved by observing days, months, seasons, and years. That's Jewish language. That's the Mosaic law. That's the Jewish calendar. It was the Jews who had special days, i.e. the Sabbath. It was the Jews who had months, new moons, and special seasons, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacle. It was the Jews who had special years, the sabbatical year, the year of Jubilee. Again, remember the issue here, it's the Judaizers, the strict adherers of the law. They come in and say justification is not by faith alone. You have to be circumcised. You have to obey the law. And so the issue in Galatia is not that the Galatians are turning back to their old way of life, but they're going to a whole new way. And Paul's saying, it's just the same. You're just as enslaved as you were worshiping demonic forces and false gods. So let's try to bring this forward to modern day. Suda says, before you came to know God, the Bible says you were lost, you were without hope, you were dead in your sin, and you were enslaved. And in that state of being, what you and I did is we would worship things that are not God's. We would worship the created and not the creator. We would worship our families. We worship our jobs. We worship our positions. We worship our possessions. And in that, we became enslaved to greed, to lust, to pride, to jealousy, envy, bitterness, wrath, rage. Those were the things that we were enslaved to. But then Christ came. And bought us out, and by justification through faith, we became heirs, we became sons of God. But then in that freedom, sometimes we start thinking these thoughts. In our freedom, sometimes we start thinking, if I read my Bible every morning, God will like me a little bit more. Sometimes in our freedom, we start thinking these things. If I go to church, it will keep my family together and happy. Sometimes in our freedom, we say, if I give to the church, surely God will bless me. He'll keep the raises and the bonuses coming. In our freedom, sometimes we think, if I pray with enough faith, God will keep me healthy. He'll never make me that sick. Sometimes in our freedom, we think, if I serve at church or serve through the church, God's got to be good to me, right? He owes me a little bit. 
And I probably know none of us in here would actually say those words out loud. But silently, secretly, in our minds and our hearts, maybe we're thinking that. Maybe we're hoping that. Maybe we're kind of acting on that. And if Paul were here today, I think this is what he would say, is that we are enslaved. Paul would tell us, you know what? You might as well go drink a bottle of whiskey and smoke an e-cig, kick a cat, rob a bank, cheat on your spouse and lie about the whole thing because the results are going to be the same. You and I can do nothing to earn our salvation. You and I can do nothing to win God's merit. You and I can do nothing to earn God's favor. We don't box God in a corner. We don't twist his arm. We don't get him in a position where he has to owe us. And Paul's saying to them, if you believe this, I've labored over you in vain. If you don't understand the gospel, that you do nothing to earn your salvation, that all my sacrifice, all my training, all my teaching, all my time has been a waste. It's been pointless. Paul is going on and on. I would say this, that there is no difference between the most pious religious observance and the most evil pagan practices, if by it you think you can be saved or that God owes you something. See, Paul's not saying, I'm not trying to say that obeying God, keeping the law, following the commandments, it's not a bad thing. That's not what we're trying to say. What we're saying is that that stuff cannot save you. It will not guarantee that you will remain healthy and happy. Think about the most righteous people in the Bible, some things that happened to them. Think about Job. Think about Christ himself, the apostles that were martyred. I mean, Paul, who's writing these words, how righteous was he, right? And you know what happened to Paul? He was stoned, he was beaten, he was thrown in prison, and he had his head chopped off by Nero. That's what came of his obedience. So why do it? Why show up to church? Why give a tithe? Why serve? Why pray? Why read your Bible? It's simply this, to get more of God. That God is enough. That we just get to come to be with him, to love him, and to to worship him, to listen to him. Our relationship with Abba, Father, that's why. One of my all-time favorite books is The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. And the reason I love it is because it's short. I like short books. But it's also so good because Tim made me see a passage of Scripture in a whole new way than I'd ever seen before. Tim talks about the story of the prodigal son. And in it, Tim's main point, spoiler alert, is that the the younger brother, the prodigal who runs away, and the elder brother, they're exactly the same. In that their desire was for their father's stuff and not just to be with the father. Now, they went about this in two totally different ways. The younger brother, through complete rebellion but the older brother through complete obedience. And and there's a climax to the story. In the story, there's a party going on. There's a celebration happening. And and everyone's inside. The younger brothers come home. We're celebrating that he's come back. But one person's not there. It's the elder brother. He's outside. He's mad. He's got his arms crossed. He's got his bottom lip out. He's angry. He's pouting. And the father comes out in dialogues with the elder brother. And here in this dialogue, we finally see the true nature of the elder brother. His kind of facade of moral compliance and obedience is let down. And we see his true heart. Here's how the conversation goes. The son says, I have served you 
meaning, you know what? You kind of owe me, Dad. He's demanding. The son is prideful. He says, I've never disobeyed, so celebrate me. The son is selfish. He says to his dad, you never gave me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. The son prefers justice over grace. He says, my younger brother, he took and he, he squandered all of his property on prostitutes. And you kill the fattened calf for him? The elder brother, he realizes there's a cost for reconciliation and he's not willing to pay it. See, the younger brother, he took his inheritance. So everything that was left was the older brother's. So the new ring, the new robe, the new sandals, the calf, it all belonged to the older brother. But he said, no, it's mine, I'm holding on to it. He didn't have the heart to want to buy back to redeem his younger brother. So how do you know if you and I are an elder brother? How do we know if we've got a little legalism in us? How do we know if we, in our freedom, have gone back and been enslaved to elementary principles of the world? Here's a few diagnostics. You might be an older brother. If when life doesn't go as you want, you don't just get sorrowful, you get angry and bitter because you think you're owed a good life. You might have a little bit legalist mentality if you base your self-image on being a smart, hardworking, moral member of an elite group and that makes you feel better than others. You might be enslaved to elementary principles of the world if you have joyless, fear-based compliance. There's no love. There's no joy. There's just duty. You might be an elder brother if you lack the assurance of the Father's love. Criticism from others doesn't just hurt you. It devastates you. Irresolvable guilt, you beat yourself up for what you did. There's a shame that actually pushes you away from God rather than draws you to him. And you have a dry prayer life. There's no more wonder. There's no more awe. There's a line in this book that is so haunting to me. It should be so haunting to every believer. Here's what Tim Keller says. The main thing that is separating you and God is not your sin, but your damnable good work. So we have to ask ourselves, why do we do the good things we do? Why do we obey God? Is it to make much of him or to manipulate God to do what we want? Paul continues in his passionate plea in verse 12. He says, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I have also become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it's because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They, and he's talking about the Judaizers here. He, he's so just passionate, just pouring it out. He can't even write their name. They want to shut you out. They want to make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children. For whom am I again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you? I wish I could be present with you. I wish I could change my tone with you. But I am perplexed about you. It's amazing when Paul says, he's telling them to the Galatians, I want you to be like me. 
Here's what he means by that. He went into a little bit more detail in Philippians. In Philippians, Paul says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But whatever gain I had, I've counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the passing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For this sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count all of them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's what Paul's saying. This is what I want you to be like. This is what I want you to become. That Jesus is everything. One of the things he mentions in that text is he says, uh, my condition was a trial to you. That's why he came to them at first. Many people think he might have had malaria. Many people think he might have had an eye disease. Honestly, we don't know. What we do know is it was gross and nasty, whatever it is. So much so that he said it was a trial to them. That it was hard for them just to even accept him and welcome him in. But they did. They loved him. They welcomed him as an angel, as if Jesus himself were there. And they had this great relationship, this tight friendship. He says, you would have even gouged out your eyes for me. So maybe that does imply that Paul had some sort of eye disease. But maybe it's just a common language in that day to say, I would give anything for you. I would do anything. And so they've had this friendship. And then he says, now I become your enemy? Because why? I told you the truth. I told you what you didn't want to hear. See, the Judaizers, they're making much of you. They're puffing you up, but they really don't care about you. They're tickling your ears, telling you what you want to hear. But I'm telling you the truth, and now you've turned your back on me. And so Paul, he ends his plea for justification by faith alone. My dear children, I wish I could be there with you. I wish I could change my tone. He's angry. He's mad. He's like, I can't change my tone, you know. And he says, I'm perplexed by you. That means to be at one's wit's end. I, I don't know what else to do. Paul says they're giving him so much pain and anguish, it's as if he's delivering them, laboring them again. Mom's in the room. You've had 17 hours of labor and delivery. <laughs> right? Baby just, boom, comes out after 17 hours. Doctor cleans him up a little bit and says, all right, let's put it in and do it all over again. It's painful, right? That's what Paul's saying. It's as if I'm having to deliver you again. This is crazy. So he kind of ends his personal plea, and then he goes to his third and final argument for justification by faith alone. And this, he gives a biblical analogy here. It's really interesting. He says, I'm going to allegorize a story. Now, the story of Sarah and Hagar and Abraham, it's a true historical story. But Paul's going to take it, and he's going to make some comparisons and some similarities. Now, why is he using allegory? A couple of reasons may be this. One, it's just a common rhetoric practice in those days. To kind of close your sermon, to close your talk, to close your argument with an illustration. Maybe it's because this story had been brought up by the Judaizers and they were manipulating it and perverting it. And so Paul wanted to use that. Maybe it was to show that God's plan of redemption has always been by grace through faith. And so for the sake of time, I'll let you read that on your own. But let me just sum it up for you. Paul tells the story of Abraham. How God comes to him and says... I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. And Abraham's like, thanks, God, that's wonderful, but 
don't you remember, I'm old. And my wife, she's really old. We, we've tried that. We've, we've been down that road. We've given up on that hope and that dream. And God said, it'll be so. So Abraham and Sarah, they try to have a kid, nothing. They try again, nothing. They try again, nothing. And the cycle just continues. And finally, maybe it's Sarah who comes up with this plan. She says, hey, why don't you sleep and have a baby with my servant? And I wish I could have seen Abraham's face in that time, right? Like, uh, you know, it's always a trap, okay? And so he does. He lies with Hagar, and out of that relationship, Ishmael is born. And God comes and says, no, 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 no. That's not what I had in mind. That's not my plan. That's your own effort. That's you doing what you can do. I said you would have a child. You have a child, Abraham and Sarah. And God does it. He delivers on his promise. And they have Isaac, miraculous child. So Paul takes this story that's common that most people know, and he allegorizes it. Here's what Paul says. He says that Hagar, she's a slave woman. Her child is a slave child. Ishmael was born according to the flesh, a product of human effort. Her child was born into slavery. And he says this. He says, Hagar actually represents the old covenant. She represents the law given to Mount Sinai. She represents earthly, present-day Jerusalem. She represents Jews, Judaism, and slavery to the law. And then he turns and he says, here's what Sarah represents. Sarah represents a son, or she had a son born into freedom. She is the free woman. She represents the new covenant. She represents grace given by Christ on the cross. She represents new, earthly, heavenly, or heavenly Jerusalem. She represents Christianity and freedom in Christ. One pastor said, if a Jew were to read this, it would have been like an open hand slap in their face. Because Jews trace their lineage to Abraham through Isaac, through Sarah. Not through Ishmael and Hagar. And so to say, actually, no, 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 Judaism, Jewish, present-day Jerusalem, that's Hagar. That's Ishmael. That's slavery. Isaac, that's, that's Christianity. That's the new covenant, right? This would be huge for them. But Paul is just emphasizing over and over again, justification is by faith alone. Faith alone. And then he closes his argument in this way. He says this, but what does Scripture say? We are to cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free. And so you and I, we have to cast out legalism, and we have to live in liberation. Here's kind of the difference between the two. First of all, legalism is trying to attain or maintain righteousness from God through human effort. And Paul's like, we got to cast that out. Legalism says, I have to wake up and read my Bible in the morning or I'll feel guilty. Liberation says, I get to wake up in the morning and read my Bible. Legalism says, I need to go to church to keep the other family members happy. Liberation says, I can't wait to go to church to worship and to learn. Legalism says, I'll raise my hands in worship so that others take note of me and think I'm spiritual. But liberation says, I throw my hands up in worship because God is so good. Legalism says, I have to give or God's not going to keep blessing me financially. Liberation says, I give sacrificially because God has so richly blessed me. Legalism says, I ought to pray because that's what you're supposed to do as a Christian. 
Liberation says, I love praying because I get to spend time with God, to listen to God. Legalism says, I'll serve in the church because it's not that hard, and I'll feel good about myself. But liberation says, I'll serve in the church because I love using my unique God-given gifts, talents, and abilities to build up the body. So there's two ways I want to respond today. Some of you in here, you need to find freedom through Christ. You can't go back to slavery because you've never come out. Your whole life you have been enslaved and you have worshipped things that are not God's. And today I would invite you to extend the invitation to put that aside, to trust in Christ by faith alone and find freedom. Find freedom through Christ. Because some of you, you've been playing church. You're as religious as you can be, but you're as lost as you can be. Because it's not through religious observance that we are saved. It's by faith in Christ alone. And some of us today, we've had freedom through Christ. But now we've turned back to an old way. We've gone to something new. And we've found ourselves enslaved again. And I would invite you to come out of that as well. It's like you're trying to pay God back for what he does. It's trying like you're trying to earn God's love or make him love you more. It's just impossible to do. And so we have to after, ask ourselves this question. Why are you here today? In, in just a few moments, we're going to stand up and worship. Why do you worship? When the offering comes and you put something in, why do you put it in? Some of you just got through serving in the last hour. Why did you serve? Is it for God or was it for you? Behind one of those motives is freedom. Behind the other one is enslavement. Let me pray. We'll worship. We'll also receive our offering then. God, thank you so much for your wonderful, unmerited, free gift of grace. God, that while we were enslaved, while we were dead to our sins, you made a way for us to be right with you. So God, I pray if there's anyone in here who's in bondage, who's in slavery, God, that you would set them free today. That they would realize there's nothing that they have to do to earn that. But it's freely given, it's placed in their lap if they just receive it by faith. And God, for those of us who have found that freedom, but we've been lured away, pulled away, we've listened to other voices and think we have to earn your love, that we win your merit God, I pray that you would release us from that as well. Just to have freedom to love you and to serve you. God, thank you for your adoption of us, for buying us out of slavery, making us your children. By faith, we trust in you and we love you. Amen.